0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's just turned 4 o'clock and it's, that means it's time for Tuesday home time. And it's Joan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 this evening. Will the Panguna mine on Bougainville ever reopen? I'll be speaking with Luke Fletcher, who's from the group Jubilee Australia. Remaining projects in Timor-Leste, supported by Avida. I'll be speaking to Sam Bond. The current situation in Sri Lanka, not good. We're not hearing much about it. Human rights activist, Dr. Brian Sinwaratna. The Jewish National Fund, a fund you mightn't have heard much about, but... It's been described as planting trees to uproot families. And Yemen, with Cathy Kelly, coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy, because he won't be here next week. So this is Kevin for today.
0: A week, Jane, listener, when I must take issue with a number of programs on this station. I know this is being disloyal, but it makes me so angry. Other programs, well, including, sadly, often the rest of this program, but certainly not the week that was, which respects the important role of the caring business class in making this a great country, in striving to make the world a great world, and my anger was fueled by the true blue Aussie caring business class profits council supremo Jennifer to cut wages, forced yesterday to plead that people stop bashing business, quote, and the week that was backs her to the hilt. The jobs of millions of true blue Aussies depend on their caring employer making profits and profits and profits. Jennifer explained the obvious. We can't overcome this long-term problem of slow wage growth if caring employer's profits don't continue to soar. And obviously the record profits they've been announcing aren't quite enough yet to allow caring employers to pay workers just a little more, because there's no doubt they would if they could. And how's this for demolishing the silly socialist lie that profits and ripping off are all business cares about? We are basically forgetting Jennifer Sage direct quote the future of the people we are talking about is not the future of the people sitting around those board tables it's the future of the person working in the hardware store working at the supermarket working in the airline serving you on in a restaurant and running their corner store what a beautiful sentiment. If only the long-haired, commie, greenie, wooden-work-in-an-iron lot had just a little of the same concern for all, empathy with all. The long-haired lot are obviously the cause of all those workers being ripped off and inadvertently underpaid or not paid at all. Jennifer's desperate, timely plea was in support of the tax cuts for the filthy rich that are so essential, responding to some naive suggestions that with one in five top 100 companies paying no tax whatever that is, not one cent, but presumably happily accepting a bit of corporate welfare from other people's taxes, then there is no need for a tax cut. That is a tremendously misleading representation of tax arrangements, Jennifer talked reason. Doesn't tremendously misleading misrepresentation reveal how tremendously misleading, misrepresenting it is? Uh, what do you mean by tax arrangements, Jennifer? It's the way companies arrange their taxes uh, so that they don't pay any. Exactly. Jennifer and a whole bunch of the top 100 caring employers are accompanying big supremo Malcolm bull to the US of the UN of the US of the world, presumably tax-deductible, to maintain their fight for those true blue-wazzy workers they so care about. One of those on the junket, Oh, sorry, the pilgrimage, the airline that used to be our Supremo Alan joystick, explaining why it had paid no tax for 10 years, a compelling reason for slashing tax on the filthy rich, said it had all these losses to absorb before paying tax on its record profits, and his salary had soared because of the record profits. Just wish the ABC interviewer had asked Alan whether his salary had been reduced because of the losses. Well, the book losses, or why he too shouldn't have to absorb the losses before getting a soaring increase seemed the obvious question, but she didn't ask it. Malcolm's Minister for the Terra Whites know what's good for the non-people Nigel scold them. Nigel is another great mind in government, isn't he? Nigel joined Malcolm, as we mentioned last week, celebrating the 10th anniversary of saying sorry. Said, motions arising from the Uluru meeting last year. Correction. Uh, Sorry, sorry, Nigel. What uh, is rock? Is rock meeting? Oh, okay, sure, sure. Anyway, Nigel said motions like non-people wanting a body which would advise government and a treaty with the invaders showed just how they had no idea what is good for them. Their desecration, their violation of the sacred day when this great country was founded in 1788 is violent proof of their inability to run their own lives. How irresponsibly dangerous to democracy it would be to give them some say in running their lives. Uh, but, but Nigel, they were here. It had been founded. Don't be stupid. It was too annoying. Everyone knows that. Today, move on 130 years, not that we're suggesting a bloke like Nigel is stuck in 1788. Today in 2018 is Tuesday, Tuesday, and yesterday was Monday, Monday, which I raise because naturally it reminds us of Malcolm's ever-popular deputy and hayseed and sheep party supremo brackets temporary barnacle. Sorry. How, you ask? It's obvious. Monday, Monday was sung by, <laughs> yeah, you got it, the Mummers and the Puppas. That's our very bad joke of the day out of the way. Oh, and let's thank Barnacle for landing us with Matthias Rotten-Tuber as acting big supremo. Thankfully, Malcolm has addressed the Mummies and Daddies problem, his much-publicised ban of sex between ministers and their staff. Well, that's guaranteed to stop that. As passion arises in the office late at night after about 10,000 drinks, they'll look at each other, put their disheveled clothes back on and agree, no, no, Malcolm Shesh, we can't. Although. Having an affair per se is certainly big news. There wouldn't be more than about 8 million troublousies having an affair at any given time. Perhaps Malcolm could help the public purse a bit more by turning his attention to the real issues, certain jobs that were created. Although, let's point out, the pregnant non-partner was not a partner. The seething wife back home where Barnacle was no longer was the partner. Semantics can be a wonderful thing. But partner or not, newly highly paid position, not advertised, um, probably worth a look. And free accommodation for the non-partners from a caring business class per- person who suddenly won thousands in contracts. Hmm. Probably worth a look. While we still can, bringing us to the week that was End of the Earth Report. Doing its best to end the world, the recent figures on political donations show the coal lobby was the biggest political donor in the last election. Nearly four mil, plus another one and a half mil from the Minerals Council. But sadly, government has been forced to attack and threaten bad, bad donors like GetUp, which is trying to thwart the end of the earth spending 820000 on that irresponsible campaign, forcing the fossil-fry-the-planet lobbyists to have to spend seven times that amount to ensure the end of the earth rolls on. But the Minerals Fossils Council made one silly tactical error. It told journalists to donate so it can have access to government to ensure the end of the earth. Well, I added the last bit. While other major donors explained the real reason for such generosity, like Jamie Puker's Crook Casino, the AN Zero for You Bank, the Insurance Council, said they gave to support a stable political environment, expecting nothing, absolutely nothing in return. Not saying the Minerals Council's burst of honesty has any effect other than 350.org, a climate activist group according to the lord rupert of wapping sin that has hijacked the batman by-election faces the loss of its charity status and tax perks over its overt political campaigning overt campaigning something the coal lobby would never do probed 350.org over helping organize blocking coal loading at the port of newcastle slowing the end of the earth Wonder if it has equal access to government. Also mentioned last week, we've got to give some sort of marks for obfuscation no, let's go all the way, outright hypocrisy when Zion accuses someone of aggression because it shot down one of its planes bombing the proverbial out of them. And I thought, they've obviously become so used to bullying the Palestinian non-people who lived in Zion when it was Palestine, who have no more lethal weapons than stones and words which fall on barren disinterest. Stones and words against one of the world's biggest train-killer machines that they see the gross injustice in someone actually fighting back when they assume the are we given right to attack anyone they feel like attacking although we know those lethal train killer arsenals are not the aggressor thanks to the u.s of the u.n of the u.s of the world national guns don't kill lobby endorsed by no less reliable a source as the u.s of big supremo himself as the 18th mass shooting in 2018 saw 17 more students going to school but not going home, killed not by a personal arsenal, but by the 19-year-old who had accumulated, legally as it should be, as is his constitutional right, the personal arsenal. And Donald Trample, the poor, expressed his sympathy and said students should be safe to go to school and go home again. And the obvious solution, because we know guns don't kill, it's people who kill, is ban people. Before long, it will go into reverse exponential, and the problem will be over. The guns will run the planet, like guns used to run Tasmania, and their facsimiles still do. And, finally, the guns will facilitate the banning people process. Speed it up! Perhaps Donald's a closet environmentalist, addressing the population issue, not just at home, but all over the world. Good afternoon.
1: And that was Mr. Kevin Healy. And as I said, you won't be hearing Mr. Kevin Healy next week on the program because he'll be tackling waves at the beach and also a few bubblies after the waves. So have a happy holiday, Kevin, and we'll talk to you in um, a week's time. You're listening to 3CR and the time is 13 minutes past 4 o'clock it would appear that there have been conflicting stories regarding Bougainville in relation to the closed mine at Panguna, the closure of which led to an estimated 20,000 lives lost in the ensuing years of war. A report on the 10th of February stated, the race to reopen one of the world's biggest copper mines, Panguna, is dividing landowners and the wider community in Bougainville. Key points, local leader Philip Miriori says activity at the Panguna mine would bring prosperity and better infrastructure to the community. Bougainville president said the government is keen to restart the mine to boost its case for independence. And not all landowners around the mine are happy with the stalemate or with RTG's push to leapfrog former operator BCL. Then on the 12th of February, the report that landowners and companies are in a new battle for the Panguna mine. And one day later, the President of the Bougainville Interim Government, John Mommas, told the media that the mine would remain closed until after the referendum vote, expected to take place on the 15th of June, 2019. I'm speaking now with Luke Fletcher, who's the Director of Jubilee Australia, to clarify the situation as he sees it. First, Luke, can you explain who your organisation is and its connection with Bougainville?
2: We started getting involved in the Bougainville issue in 2013 when it was brought to our attention that there was a sort of renewed push by BCL. To reopen Panguna, and it appeared to have the support of the autonomous Bougainville government. And so, we thought we'd, we, we, knowing what we knew about the uh, anecdotally, what we knew about the tensions amongst the communities in Panguna about this, that was somewhat worrying to us. So, our first report, which came out in 2014, we, we had some people go up to the communities and speak to them, and on the basis of that, we published our first report on Bougainville called Voices of Panguna, which basically argued in a nutshell that the communities in Panguna may not be as excited about the mine as people were saying, and in fact that they might even be strongly opposed to the mine, especially um, given the fact that BCL, they admitted felt that BCL hadn't cleaned up the environment problems or or really acknowledged its own responsibility for the human rights abuses during the war. So that was a very controversial report, and we followed it up with, uh, a year later with another second report about the new Bougainville Mining Act. Last year we did, or so 2016, we did some workshops where we, we took this sort of work around the island and met with communities and did some workshops with them. And uh, we're now working on a third Bougainville project, which is looking at what... The options are, especially economically, for Bougainville. Does it need to have mining? Is there other other options? What would they look like? Yeah, basically pr- trying to provide more information for people on Bougainville as to their future. We have people going there quite a lot. We, okay. just, we work a lot with Ruth Silvana, who is a, a Bougainville based um, activist and scholar, and we just had a, our film crew who, who who were making a film, short film about those project, go over there just. February uh, and uh, so yeah we have people going over there quite a lot.
1: So the people who go and have mm. gone over the last couple mm. of years have, have had mm. first-hand experience from those people of what it was like to live through those terrible years of the war and they still remember it.
2: Absolutely I mean that's the, been a the really um, powerful thing impression that we have is that the war is still very much real for people you know so many people lost relatives, lost family, and there's still a lot of pain and there's sort of unresolved pain, I mean, especially around the Panguna area where a lot of the fighting was um, and a lot of the, the, more the sort of the resistance, if you like, was strongest. Uh, obviously, a lot of people had, a lot of, you know, families had people on both sides, some fighting with the PNG EDF, some fighting with the, the uh, Bougainville resistance movement. So, you know, it, it's sort of the wounds are still very much there. And that is part of the problem as we see it, is that these words take a long time to heal, and there's still a lot of pain uh, about it, really. And um, the idea that especially BCL, which is sort of perceived to have blood on its hands, now, in, in our opinion, quite quite rightly. So going back and reopening with BCL is, just seems really like just an absolute recipe for disaster. But... There is also a general feeling that, especially in, uh, around the Panguna region, that uh, any sort of mining is, is not, which is going to be have the same sort of impact, is going to be very dangerous. I mean, the, the river is still polluted. There's, there's still tailings waste and, 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 you know, copper products in the river. It's, it's bright blue, as you probably have seen from the images. And so there's just, there's just still a lot of, I mean, there are some groups who, do, who would like to see mining start there. And that's always been the case, but there was this recent, as you probably know, there was a recent warden's hearing in December about whether to renew BCL's license, and the information we have that it was voted down by the landowners, 60 to 60 against to 44. So, and that was what forced the recent announcement by the president to not renew the license. So, uh, yeah, there's obviously mixed. There's a lot of different people with a lot of different agendas, but. There still seems to be a significant amount of discomfort and um, uh, uneasiness about it.
1: Has there been a divide and rule policy by BCL? Have they been up there trying to get the people to vote in favour?
2: It's impossible for us to know exactly what BCL is thinking. We're not privy to any of their internal discussions. However, it does seem that they do seem to be working with particular groups and they do seem to be trying to use those groups as, uh, as supporters to achieve their agenda, which is to be part of reopening. They're obviously facing a setback uh, with this recent announcement, but, yeah, they're, they're, from our, our point of view, certainly don't have universal and don't appear even to have generalised support and in that sense, they, uh, even, even though they might have support of some individuals and groups. It seems at the moment though so that's not going to be enough
1: when you think that if they'd have done the right thing and cleaned up the area and paid compensation for the, the people who have suffered, they might have got a different result.
2: They might well have. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's impossible to know because there's just still so much pain about the, the number of people who died and, you know, the blockade and everything, but it's, it's quite possible that that might have made an impact, yeah.
1: Where is Rio yeah. Tinto and all this?
2: Rio sold its shares in BCL or, in fact, it sort of gave them away... To the PNG government and the Bougainvillean government, middle of last year. So Rio is basically out. And that's another issue that faces BCL is that without Rio, you know, be a well capitalized company, where they're going to get the money is not clear. It's difficult to see private banks lending them money for such a risky venture. So Rio is out. We don't expect them to come back.
1: So Rio absolves themselves from the, the carnage of Bougainville. Pretty much, yep. Great, isn't
2: it? Yep. Yeah, I mean, we, we, look, we've been pretty clear about that. We, you know, we think the BCL and Rio have responsibility for, especially the early period of the war, their involvement in supplying, as far as we are, in terms of the documents that we've seen and the information that we've seen, their role in supplying the, the government troops with, with transport, with food, and, and also their, the role of their executives in pushing the PNG government towards conflict. We think that the company, both companies, have blood on their hands, and um, we'd like to see them go to trial for it. It hasn't happened yet, and it's going to be very difficult now. But for us, it's, it's the most egregious case of corporate irresponsibility in Australia's recent history, and there's no question about that.
1: Not forgetting the Australian government's involvement.
2: Well, that's absolutely right. You know, Chris Laslett's book, State Crime on the Margins of Empire, has amassed an incredible amount of evidence to show that the Australian government knew and supported it. So that's a whole other question about whether Australia's ever going to acknowledge its role. It hasn't done.
1: There's another mining company also vying to reopen the Panguna mine?
2: Yeah, well, they, there's probably more than one, but yeah, there's this RTG. You been talking about the RTG group, yes. which is a Chinese-backed group, seems to be the the one with the inside track at the moment to the ABG. We don't know a lot about them. Again, we we feel that any company would face challenges. As with BCL, they seem to have some supporters in the community who are kind of standing with them. But again, yeah, it it in any company it's facing, we'd be facing a lot of challenges. That's not to say it's impossible, but,
1: yeah. Was the announcement that the mine wouldn't go ahead until after the referendum sort of a surprise at this time?
2: Yes and no. We've been arguing that it was sort of inevitable that the government would have to do this eventually because of the resistance. So in that sense, it was not a surprise because it, was just, it just seemed to be obvious that this was the only... Course of action for the government, but given their uh, until that point implacable position that there was no, no there was no problem and the mine everything was going swell and the mine was going to happen soon. And I guess you know in that sense the fact that it was such a big turnaround and it, it happened sort of immediately it was it was a bit of a surprise to us. Yeah, I'm not sure it was as much of a surprise to to people in bogotá though.
1: And the fact that the the government the the interim government on Bougainville as a, as a, a shareholder, I suppose, in, in this mine. Is that that's how you put it?
2: It would be, yes. It has a stake now, thanks to the the, the Rio transfer I mean, it would what that really means is that's quite common in PNG, that the government will have a shareholding. What that means is that it would get some of the dividends, which are obviously the profits, uh, sort of a portion of the profits paid to any shareholders of any company that has, including sort of the individual share, you know, share investors and so on and so forth. But the, the, that's just one of the revenues that the government would, in theory, any government would in theory get from from mine, there would also be revenues through the corporate tax rate, which in PNG is, is 30%. And there would also be revenues from royalties. So they're separate to dividends, and that's usually calculated as around 2% of, in, in oil and gas, that's 2% of the wellhead value, but royalties calculated slightly differently in, um, in mining deposits. But so there's, there's usually kind of at least three or four different ways that revenues could theoretically go to any government in a resources project in PNG, than the dividends coming from the shareholding would be just one of them, if that makes sense. Sorry if that was a complicated explanation, but it is quite complicated.
1: What do you yeah. believe the involvement of the PNG government has been over the last little bit? to get this That's mind a
2: really good question.
1: To yeah. get this mind going.
2: I'd just be speculating. It would depend on what sort of a... Deal, the PNG government would be able to come to with the autonomous Bougainville government, a Bougainville government, on whether it would be able to get at the, at the moment because Bougainville is not independent. That all that company tax profits, for example, 30% rate, would go to PNG in theory. Now, I can't see Bougainville agreeing to that. Um, so I think what would happen is the PNG government and Bougainville, the ABG, would sit down and try and work out a new arrangement. If anything happened, you know, a new arrangement in which the revenues were shared. Alternatively, if they do wait until after independence, and, and Bougainville is an independent country, then theoretically all of the revenues would come to the, what is now the autonomous Bougainville government, but in, in the future would be an independent state of Bougainville. So basically nobody really knows (laughs) you know what there's a whole lot of different scenarios that could happen if the mine were to go ahead and at the moment nobody really knows what's going on um, and what might go on you know there'd be a lot of jostling for and negotiations to happen I think the more important thing at the moment is that we're not even sure how feasible it is and the other thing to say is that as we've seen with other big resource projects in PNG, you might not see any returns, any significant returns for 10 years, given all the capital costs of restarting the mine, and they can all be made as tax write-offs, you see, so then you don't have to pay as much tax. So, you know, there might not be revenues for 10 years, you know, and that does put into question the sort of argument that the company needs the mine to happen soon for its own financial the financial health country, sorry, not the company. So, yeah.
1: We have now the announcement that BCL is not going to take Mm. this decision lying down. Mm
0: -hmm, mm Mm-hmm.
1: They're taking an arm of the Bougainville government to court. Which arm?
2: The um, Department of Mineral and Energy Resources, according to my information. They're trying to get a judicial review. That's all we really know. I'd like to find out more about what our gut sort of sense would be that it's It might be a bit of a long shot, but I haven't had any legal expert advice on that at the moment. So, um, uh, uh, yes, who knows? Who knows? It does does seem like a bit of a long shot to us. We think that there's no reason to rush into this um, and that if if Panguna was to reopen, it would have to do so with the full support of the community and it clearly doesn't have that right now. So in that sense... it it seems like the the, the right decision.
1: Is there other mining happening at the moment on Bogerville?
2: Not at the moment, but um, I mean there's sort of small-scale artisanal mining around Pangoon, just sort of people with very um, sort of basic equipment, um, very small amounts. Um, There is a mining lease up in around the Timports region for a new lease with um, an Australian company called Kalia Holdings um, but it's just an exploration lease at the moment, I believe, so nothing substantial.
1: Well, a, a number of people say that they have to have the mine because otherwise Bougainville won't be able to sustain itself over, over years. It's mm. now how many, how many years since the mine closed, mm. but the, mm. the people are still sustaining themselves?
2: They are. Um, Look, this is a really, really important question and it's it's the main focus of our next piece of work on Bougainville, which will be coming out in a couple of months. At the moment, Bougainville is dependent on aid from PNG and from foreign donors. However, so in that sense, there does need to be an increase in revenue collection of Bougainville to become independent. The question is, where should that revenue come from and... Is mining likely to deliver the revenues that people promise? And this is the question that we're examining now, but I, I, I would say that we, we should be very sceptical about some of the claims that what mining would – as I said earlier, it pro- looks like it would take 10 years for any significant revenues to come in from Panguno, for example. But then there's also – you have to consider what are the costs, even if you are, if, you, even if there, there is revenue, revenue, uh, revenue coming in from mining. What are the costs to the environment? What are the, what are the risks to the country if there's another, if there's more conflict? Uh, and, and are there other options? And, and what should be done to promote them? So these are the sort of questions that our next report and project are going to be examining.
1: Well, it's difficult to think of a multinational mining company in a developed country at the moment, and over the last number of years that have done the right thing by the people. It, certainly,
2: in PNG it's a very sorry tale and Australian mining companies are also in sub-Saharan Africa and, and there are some problems there too. So Philippines? We, we, we're, yeah, in the Philippines and, and all, I mean the other thing is we're seeing even in Australia that resource companies are not paying their fair share of tax and more and more information is coming out about that. So that's a whole related problem and it, and it does happen in developing countries as well. So. Uh, It doesn't mean it it can't work, but it is the constraints to um, resource, what we we like to call resource-led development in these countries are immense and in some cases insurmountable, we would argue.
1: Although I remember years ago there was a push in Australia to force Australian companies working in developing countries to adhere to a set of standards uh, same standards that they would have in Australia but that failed, didn't
2: it? Yeah, look, look. we would like to see an independent an independent body set up to monitor the behaviour of Australian companies overseas, particularly in extractive industries, along the lines that the Canadian government has recently set up they've set up their omb- uh, ombudsperson to monitor the activities of their mining companies and other companies overseas we think that's, I mean we're doing some research into now but we're very interested in, in that model in Australia.
1: Is there anything yeah. else you'd like to add, Luke?
2: I think that's, I think you've pretty much covered it all. Just to say, yeah, if, if people are interested to find out more about our work in Bokeville and our upcoming reports, please do. The best place is to, is to go on our website and you'll find we have a, a page on our Bokeville work and you can sign up for emails and, and we also have a Facebook group.
1: Thanks so much, Luke.
2: All right, thank you, Janet.
1: And that um, email you can get through the web page, which is Jubilee Australia. And that was Luke Fletcher, who's the director of Jubilee Australia. It's um 32 minutes past four o'clock. I'm Jane Clifton,
3: author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book.
1: the JNFs, planting trees or uprooting families. I'm joined by Vivian Polteit from Jews Against the Occupation to talk about the dark side of the Jewish National Fund and moves to deny the extremist right-wing organisation responsible for the expulsion of Palestinian families in some of the most sensitive areas of the Israeli-Palestine conflict tax-deductible status here in Australia. First, Vivian, the beginnings of the Jewish National Fund.
3: Oh, it began in the early 20th century. It was a fund to raise funds to buy and um, uh, take land in the land of Palestine for the use of Jews. That's its function. Well, it used it to buy the land and then it would farm it, but and then it would be for Jewish labourers only, you see, and all, the land for the kibbutz and so on. That would all be part of the um, Jewish establishment of a jewish state you know there was the whole thing about jewish labor only and the jnf is specifically and this is one of the issues about the jewish national Fund, that more might say it's fine for a community to raise money for its own people but with the state of israel it seizes land and then gives it to the jewish national fund to administer and work on and since the remit of the jewish national fund is jews only that's a specifically racist situation the whole point of it is that um, part of their thing is they put out such a strong environmentally um, sensitive image. You know, every Jewish family, you know, even my very secular Jewish family had a little what they call blue box with the Star of David on it where people put their money for the J and F for trees in Israel. And this was, you know, making the desert bloom and build, redeeming the land is the word, redeeming the land. So even though it was a secular project, there was a lot of religious stuff woven in with it, and so this was the scene. you know, this is the sort of national project of the Jews, and um, the Jewish National Fund was an agent in regard to land, and what else they do is they, um, many, you see there were so so many um, villages destroyed at the foundation of the state, and over 530 villages, many of these were either destroyed or depopulated, and the destroyed ones, they'll plant forests on. Like, for instance, Canada Park and Australia Park, that's built on an old destroyed Palestinian village. I mean, there is um, an Israeli organization called Sokrot, which means remembering. And they uh, take tours showing people where the destroyed Palestinian villages are. And so to try and rescue and um, bring, uh, you know, um, uh, resurrect the memory of what went before, but it wasn't. A land without people for a people without a land, which was the sort of Zionist mythology.
1: And what happened to those people whose villages were destroyed?
3: They were pushed off or they fled or massacred in, in cases. And this is the source of this Palestinian refugee problem to this day because Israel will not allow Palestinian refugees to return. In the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it says you have the right to leave your country and come back to your country. And so this is a flagrant breach of of their human rights.
1: Talk a bit more about what you call the dark side right up to the present time.
3: All right, well, at the present time, there's lots of land being taken from Palestinians for Jews only. For example, in, um, in East Jerusalem, in, in the um, part called Syrile One, the JNF is part of taking land from Palestinians and giving it over to a society which looks after it's very um, right-wing zealots, uh, some zealots who have this thing they call the City of David, which is supposedly you know, the, um, an archeological site where the King David supposedly ruled. So it's, it's very mythological and very ideological and propagandist for um, promoting the um, State of Israel as the place for the Jews. They get displaced as happens all the time, and particularly I mean, on the West Bank. The West Bank is divided into essentially three parts, a very tiny part that the Palestinian Authority has nominal control of. It's only nominal because at any time the Israeli army can march in. Then there's um, so-called Area B which um, allows there's shared control between Israeli security forces and Palestinian Authority and then Area C, the the largest, which is over 60% of the whole of the West Bank, that's nearly two-thirds, where Israel has complete control. And this is the area where they are constantly moving Palestinians off the land. And they do it, again, they always do it through a sort of quasi-legal basis. So, for example, they need a permit to build anything, whether it's an outhouse or a, a goat pen or whatever, has to have a permit and if they build without a permit then at any time the um, israeli forces can move them off the land and there are lots of actions by palestinians and um, their supporters both israeli and international to resist this kind of takeover but it's um very um blatant and wrong but within the state of israel we seem to think it's all part of the west bank but within the state of Israel that's been there since 48, in the beginning of the state in the Negev Desert, which is, you know, the much bigger part of Israel, the Bedouin, where over 80,000 people were, were initially moved in the early years of the state, and now there's this plan called the Prawa plan by um, one of their politicians to move Bedouin from their villages into these um, seven specially built towns. Now I have to say that... Um, since the beginning of the state, apart from these seven towns built for Bedouins that are being forcibly removed, there have been no new towns built in Israel uh, for Palestinian uh, Arab towns. And for the same reason, that their um, buildings get destroyed just as much as in the West Bank because they have built illegally. And the whole question, the question also of the Bedouin within the Negev is that they, they live in what are called unrecognized villages. They're not recognised by the state and therefore have no services, no electricity, no plumbing, no roads, no anything. And that that can be cheek by jowl with a Jewish settlement town close by that has all the uh, facilities. And all of this is so deeply racist, so deeply, and this is why people call Israel an apartheid state.
1: And that's one way of forcing the people out, isn't it? You give them nothing and in in the end they, they leave because they can't bear it.
3: Well, some do, but men, but they've been staying. I mean, there's one village called al Kib that's been um, destroyed over a hundred times, and they rebuild and rebuild. Um, the, 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 you know, this is this absolute persistence that the Palestinians have. The word they call for it is sumud which is you know complete defiance and, and um, refusal to move. And so this is a, a major struggle. While this power plan was not passed into law, that was not successful. In fact, the processes are going on as we speak, and the Bedouin are fighting this. And yet they, had their, they have the land rights from the Ottoman and British era, and they've been moved a number of times, many of them. So the whole process is, is really unjust.
1: Can you talk about one particular family to give, put a human face on it, what's happening to the Bedouin?
3: There's a particular family within um, East Jerusalem, the Sumrin family, which has been fighting its dispossession in court for 27 years. Uh, The JNF tried to evict them in 91, and again in 2011 tried to evict them. But because, you know, groups like Rabbis for Human Rights in Israel and um, various other groups internationally, um, there was a um, protest and a, a board member it quits in protest at this dispossession. But now there's another one, and there's a campaign around with, for the Sumran family, um, because there's again another court case. So this is the um, whole situation, this, this constant taking of land. People sort of think of the Nakba, which is the name the Palestinians have for, for the, their dispossession and the, and the loss of their land. It's not a past thing 48. It's something that's happening daily as we speak.
1: And of course uh, the land's being given to right-wing settlers and that's probably the worst thing that can happen.
3: Well, that's right. Uh, Those are the only people that will go there. There's this um, family um, in the Negev, uh, there's this town in the Negev called Um al-Hiran, which um, uh, uh, the um, people are being, uh, it's it's not recognised, so it doesn't have any of these services. When internationals provide aid and all these safe schools and so on, they're demolished by Israel. So the Israel court, High Court has approved the demolition of the village to make way for two exclusively Jewish towns, which will be called Tehran. But the Bedouin have offered saying, look, we will share our town with the Jewish settlers, but we want to stay in our homes. But that is not acceptable. So it's really, really highly discriminatory and fanatical, um, really.
1: You say that this family has been fighting this for many, many years through the courts. Who are the groups that are supporting them?
3: In um, Jerusalem, the Sumrin family. Well, that's the Rabbis for Human Rights in Israel and the U.S. and then Yahad in the U.K. Um, Those are groups that I know of, but there may well be others because the whole issue is constantly um, their struggle over.
1: So where does that leave the JNF um, with... Groups, well, why when they, they realise that they're actually using people's money to do this?
3: Well, exactly. That's a very good point, because this week is Green Week, which the J&F is running to um, 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 uh, promote itself. There was a meeting in the Masada College on the north shore, in Sadarj on the north shore of Sydney. The guest speaker was the mayor of uh, Ramat Hang Magid, which is a, a, a major municipality by land, but not by population in the Negev. So they were spruiking him and so on. And we went out there and we uh, handed a leaflet out there to the extent we could before we um, were moved by the um, security. You know, we asked, you know, in the leaflet, is the Jewish National Fund kosher? And we sort of outlined some of the information I've given you. And we asked them, before you give your money to the JNF, ask yourself, is this the liberal democratic Israel you want to support? Is the JNF really caring for the natural environment in Israel? I'll speak about environmental issues in a moment. Should an organisation in breach of all human rights have your support? Should the JNF enjoy charity status and tax exemption privileges it now has? Now that, you see, is a good focus for a campaign here in Australia. They should not have these kind of exemptions at all, especially since they are so much in breach of human rights. I have to tell you about the particular fundraising focus for JMF Australia, which is Tela Park, which they describe as an outdoor wonderland in the heart of the Negev, to be constructed for, for what's called Kibbutz Telalim, And that was originally on the basis, on the ruins of the Bedouin village, and which was ethnically 48, but everything, or it's kindergarten, library, swimming pool, etc., of gardens, court, et cetera, are Jewish residents and locals only. And so when we plant trees in honor of our loved ones, we are inadvertently complicit in the displacement and dispossession of others. Now, the environmental issues, because, you know, James makes huge claims about it. its wonderful environmental role, but they do use monocrops, and particularly imported um, eucalypts from Australia even, that, that are really very bad. They use them for draining the swamps, but they have a very desiccating, souring effect on the, on the, um, on the soil. And it's argued this has played a role in the recent wildfires. And also they have pines and they sell the soil too. So there are real problems with the um, environmental credentials of the JNF.
1: Can you talk a little about the connections between the, those who control the JNF and the Netanyahu government?
3: I'm afraid I can't tell you that. I just only know that they are sort of um, de- deputized by the state to act on their behalf and they act on on the state's behalf according to their own charter which is um, either um, concealing destroyed uh, Palestinian villages or uh, by by planting supposedly environmental forests or building these um, new towns, I call them towns not settlements, for Jews only.
1: And I can imagine the money that they're getting from overseas is fairly substantial
3: Yes, like the, like the settlements in general. Yes, there the, are the, the, you know, many um, these wealthy donors like um, Edelman and so on who give huge amounts of money to these very bad projects.
1: So what's to be done, Vivian?
3: Well, I think we need to campaign that they should not have charity status or tax exemption privileges here in Australia. And in that campaign, we will be explaining this kind of information. And so this kind of leafleting is um, one of the things we've been doing.
1: And I'd imagine, too, tied in with this is the, the invitations that Australian politicians and journalists get to go to Israel and see all the wonders of Israel. This, this is huge. I mean, this
3: whole industry of propaganda that Israel has is fantastically huge. And the Jewish National Fund is particularly, and it's very sophisticated. I mean, you may be aware of what they call the birthright programs where they take young school leavers, on visits to Auschwitz and all the death camp horrors and then coming back to Israel as a great answer to the horrors of the Holocaust and so it sort of burned into them just like the um, numbers are burned into the pe- people's arms in Auschwitz that you know Israel is their um, ground of safety so that's one that's the birthright to us now, now and has something similar they have uh, education tours and where they have teachers from and I'm not wasn't clear whether it was from the Jewish day schools only, or, or schools in general, where they take them and promote all the wonders of the ANF and what they do and how they make the desert bloom. And they very much lionize David Ben Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, who retired to live in the desert in the Negev and, you know, follow his example and make the desert bloom. And it's totally silent about the displacement of the Bedouin that is involved there and the um, total wrong of what's happening then these teachers come back highly enthused and born-again supporters of Israel. And then they integrate the Zionist message in the teaching in a way that's educationally very, very questionable. They, for example, there may be a general topic at school on, you know, high-tech manufacturing, and then they'll use an Israeli case study. And that, so that, that's, you know, that these are ways in which they integrate the um, promotion and propaganda for Israel in what should be an educational
1: course. Well, nevertheless, they've got all that propaganda, but worldwide and particularly in the the US, people are waking up, and as you say, here in Australia, and the BDS campaign is part of that.
3: That's right indeed, and um, particularly in America, there's sort of a disconnect between the younger generations and Israel is growing bigger all the time. And here there's a younger generation of Jews who really object to what Israel is doing, and they're becoming active. Here, you know, because of the high percentage of Holocaust survivors, they still retain a lot of attachment to Israel, but um, still the process is undermining and... um, you know liberal Zionist Jews are in a real dilemma because they have this liberal idea of a non democratic state and all these good things, and they tend to block the actual bad realities out so they can retain this image and yet you know reality and dream uh, uh, you know are becoming more and more blatantly contradictory.
1: How do you go about um campaigning? To get the tax deductible status.
3: Well, that's just um, an idea for a campaign at this point. I, I believe the Greens uh, may be looking at that. And uh, however one does that, and, and of course, has to be a process of education of why. Why does the JNF not merit charity status? And it's very clear because of its um, human rights record.
1: Thanks, Vivian.
3: Okay, Dan. Thanks very much.
1: And that's Vivian Porjok from Jews Against the Occupation. And Vivian's in Sydney. It's um, ten minutes to five o'clock. I'll be here until six o'clock tonight. We've got to be talking about Sri Lanka next, and then Timor Leste, and finally Yemen. Lots to come yet.
2: 3CR are selling kaffiyeh Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine.
4: MC, and the Footscray Community Arts Centre present Rohingya Refugee Crisis in Colour, an exhibition that delves deep into the heart of the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis. Featuring photography from both Ali MC and Rohingya refugees, a short documentary, and stunning aerial drone footage. Head down to the opening at Footscray Community Arts Centre, 6pm on Thursday, February 8th. The exhibition runs from February 9 until March 10. For more information, visit footscrayarts.com. A 3CR supporter.
1: It's now almost nine years since the defeat of the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. But according to those who know the situation in that country, it's going from bad to worse. One of those commentators is... Australian Sinhalese human rights activist, Dr. Brian Sinaratna, who speaks of Sri Lanka as a country in chaos. Firstly,
5: the Tamil North and the East is not under the Sri Lankan government. It is under the Sri Lankan armed forces and the Sri Lankan police, 99.9% Sinhalese and 95% Sinhalese. They can do what they like, with no accountability. It is a military-stroke police state, and seven years after the end of the fighting, there is no justification whatsoever to have the North and the East under military rule. I think that the chance that this will revert to civilian rule without protests from the international community is virtually zero. President Silasena and Prime Minister Vikram have said and repeated that the armed forces in the north and the east will remain there. And as long as they remain there, the serious violation of human rights will continue. And that there is no question. Secondly, the land grab where the Tamil people have lost their lands to the armed forces continues. During the previous regime, 67,427 acres of land were taken by the armed forces. After Sirisena got into power, only 3.6% of the land has been released. So that today, 69,992 acres is still under military occupation. What is unknown is that the land that has been handed back, the 3.6% of the total, is infertile land. And as they hand back infertile land, they are acquiring fertile land, so that the Tamil people cannot exist, because they can't do any fishing, because the people on the coast are being relocated inland, and if there is no sea, they can't obviously go fishing. So they can't do fishing, they can't do agriculture, they can only exist. And this is actually a slow genocide that is going on. Thirdly, there is the relocation of Sinhalese into the Tamil area, so-called to make the Tammi the minority, even in the area in which they are a, a majority. The electoral consequences are obvious. There is another word that had to be coined, Buddhistization, the springing up of Buddhist temples in an area where there is no civilian Buddhist. The only Buddhists in the area are members of the armed forces. There are hundreds of Buddhist temples and statues uh, being erected in the north and the east. Torture is rampant. Yasmin Sukar's International Truth and Justice Project uh, ITJP, it's on the net, describes torture in detail uh, in the Joseph camp, J-O-S-E-P-H camp, in the middle of Aounia, which is the torture center for the armed forces. Really, nothing has changed since Silsena got in. Sirisena is the president of the Sinhala area in Sri Lanka. His wit does not run in the north and the east, which is under the armed forces.
1: You're predicting elections will be held soon. Why?
5: Uh, yes, the local provincial elections are going to be held in the next couple of days. Interestingly, the two partners in the government, that is the United National Party and the citizen half of the Sri Lanka Freedom Party have decided to contest the elections separately, <laughs> indicating that all is not well with the coalition, in other words, with the government. I reckon that if there is an election for the presidency today or tomorrow, citizen will lose massively, and into the shoes will step in the dreadful rajapaksa and we might well see, I hope I'm wrong, we might well see Gautabha Rajapaksa as president and Mahinda Rajapaksa as prime minister. That will be the end, not only of Sri Lanka, but certainly
1: of the Tamil people. Why would Silicena be go? go?
5: Because Silasena was elected to power purely on the votes from the Tamil north and the east. And unless the Tamils in the north and the east are mad, they would not be voting for Silasena. I mean, I've been at this game since 1948, when as a 16-year-old boy, uh, I lodged my first protest when the plantation tamils, a million plantation tamils were disenfranchised and de-citizenized by the Sri Lankan government. And all these years, from 1948 onwards, I have been following the scene. I cannot think of any time in these last seven decades where I've taught the... Uh, situation was more, more hopeless uh, than mm, it is today. Actually, the economy uh, says it all. When we got our independence, or when Sri Lanka got its independence in 1948, the economy was doing well. There was no debt. By 1985, that 35 years later, the debt was 130 billion Sri Lankan rupees. And today, 2018, this has increased to a staggering. 10,500 billion rupees. I mean, the country's uh, total debt repairment is only 2% less than the total income of the country. Uh, They're heading for bankruptcy.
1: What does Sri Lanka produce?
5: The economy is, uh, of course, tea, which it has always been, rubber, and more recently, the garment industry. Garment and tourism, that's it. So if the tourists stop going to Sri Lanka which I hope they do, because it is a blood-stained country, then Sri Lanka will crash.
1: You haven't mentioned the right-wing Buddhist monks yet.
5: The Buddhist monks have been the curse of Sri Lanka from day one. Their power is now increasing astronomically, backed by the Rajapaksas. The Buddhist power force, the BBS, Bodu Balasena or something like that, they are a rabid, lot of basically Buddhist thugs. And my mother was an ardent Buddhist. So I know all about Buddhism. This bunch, I don't think there ever has been a bunch as violent as this lot. But I would also like to point out that the first political assassination that of my uncle, Prime Minister Bandaranaike, was done not by a Tamil tiger, but by a Buddhist monk who was investigated by Scotland Yard found guilty of murder, and sentenced to death and hanged.
1: These are the same monks that have caused all, a lot of the problems in Myanmar, is that right?
5: Oh, absolutely. Myanmar, and there's another country, I, uh, I can't remember what it is. There are three countries, but Myanmar has been the worst, without question. But they are, uh, they are rising up, and Sri Lanka does not have the guts to say that anybody indulging in hate speech, which these monks are, are should be jailed. I mean, he had lost control of the Buddhist monks and even the armed forces.
1: Who are the main supporters of the Rajipaksa brothers?
5: The people, the ordinary people. When they say that uh, "Citizen romped into power, he did not. He got in by only 2%. I, I think there were only 400,000 more.
1: by the US supporting factions in Sri Lanka and on the other, China. of the Tamil state in the south of India? Uh,
5: Tamil is in the south of India. The Tamil Nadu Quite interesting. Uh, I'll give you one example. Cassava is grown in Sri Lanka, and the Chinese took about, I think, 150 acres of land and planted cassava. That's great. But they sent the Chinese workers to plant the cassava. And when the cassava matured, they exported the cassava through the Colombo airport without duty, sent it to China, and the cassava was made into chips and re-imported to Sri Lanka a profit of about 300%. That is what the Chinese are doing. One of the many things the Chinese are doing of more serious concern is that they have opened a new harbor in the Rajapaksa area, and that harbor is uh, running at a huge loss because only Chinese ships and small ones at that can enter the harbor because of a. Enormous rock at the entrance. Uh, other ships can't, and nobody wants to go there for a start. Adjoining uh, the, in the same area is the Mattala Rajapaksa Airport, uh, which has, I gather, one flight a week. And we have this massive five-star airport with no planes. There are actually photographs of this, which I saw only about a week ago. It's on the net. Massively expensive, state-of-the-art airport
1: with no flights. So this is not part of the tourist industry?
5: Well, no, who would want to go there except to go to the wildlife park? But uh, since the flights are only once a week or so, nobody wants to take the risk of going by here. They would rather hire a car and drive there to the wildlife park when they can get out when they want.
1: Nevertheless, tourism is a very lucrative business in Sri Lanka, who t- controls the tourist industry?
5: Not who controls it, who goes there, mainly Germans and people from the continent. Now, I, get, I have been back to Sri Lanka for years, so I, I can only quote what is published, but I gather that most of the tourists come from the continent, or from Europe, heard that happy. <laughs> Uh, note, I read about I'm actually getting to the point of not knowing what to do. I have been in touch with the chief minister of the northern province uh, justice, Vigneswaran and he says I hope that we will have a solution before the end of our life. I I wrote back to Vigneswaran and said I doubt it very much, not in the lifetime of even our children.
1: And that's Dr. Brian Sinwaratna, and I can only apologise for the quality of that phone interview for Brisbane. I don't think it was Brisbane's fault, but just the luck of the draw. Sometimes you get a good, most of the times you get a good line, and just occasionally you don't. And the reason Dr. Brian Sinwaratna hasn't been back to Sri Lanka for many, many years is is that um, he realises that if he gets off a plane, he might end up in a, a white van and never be seen again because I'm sure he's on plenty of lists for the security forces in Sri Lanka for his outspoken condemnation of the, the torture and the death and the, all that's going on in Sri Lanka over many years. And he's one person who is willing and able to speak out, and he's paid the price. He can't go back home to his homeland, which is Sri Lanka. <coughs>
3: In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday
2: years in the making, Radical Radio celebrating 40 years of 3CR is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station.
0: At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for 49.50 at the station during business
5: hours at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy
2: or online at 3CR.org forward slash shop.
0: Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
4: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic When everyone believes it could be true That if all the people work collectively There just might be something we can do And everything can change
1: On the program last week Sam Bond, the Timor-Leste And Indonesia organiser for AFIDA That's the Australian Trade Union Movement's Global Solidarity Movement Talked about a very successful Working Women's Centre, one of six projects that Afida supports in Timor-Leste, but there are five others, so Sam is back to talk about those. If you could first name the five, Sam, and then talk about them individually. The
6: first one and and probably the longest continuous one is with the work, with the trade union movement. So the KSTL, which is the Confederation Sindicato de de Moleste, so the the peak body, the KSTL, and then through that we directly support one of their unions, the General Workers Union or the SJTL. And so the support for both of those organisations has been ongoing and there's um, funding that's kind of come in since actually before... Independence, but in a constructive way post independence. And currently, the General Workers Union is um, the most active union there. There are uh, there are other existing unions for other industries, but the General Workers Union is is um, organising and growing in a way that's probably closer to organising models that we have over here in Australia, and is. Going from strength to strength at the moment. They have set up an office in Okusi, which is a sort of a, a regional district of, of Timor Leste that's actually based in West Timor. And they've got a new organiser there, and he's been doing a fantastic job organising construction workers and getting the construction companies there to sign on to collective agreements and um, making some big wins for the union. The support has varied from top-up funding for campaigns and top-up funding for membership. And in the early days, we were um, giving funding that went directly into the salaries. But given the model of a feeders projects is about sustainability, so we, we provide funding to organisations with a view that they will become self-sustainable particularly unions, they're now moving to that model where we're supporting projects rather than specifically supporting wages.
1: I'm wondering if the union movement in Timor-Leste is modelled on Australia?
6: I think it was originally. I think that when the the early days of support came in, they sort of um, set up what... Looked quite similar to a structure that we have in Australia with the peak council and then industry-specific unions. That model is possibly not as applicable, really, in Timor-Leste because they don't. The industries are not as concentrated, I suppose, as they are over here, and and the union membership can cross over lots of different areas for different reasons. So. People don't sort of think of themselves as working in a specific industry unless it's really clear, like nursing or construction. But with the General Workers' Union, they're actually, because it's a broad base and um, the organiser from the General Workers' Union actually came from the shop floor and established the union himself and then came on board with um, support from the feeder. I think that the General General Workers' Union is probably a better model for Timor given the size of the population and the, the breadth of the workforce and the fact that people move from job to job. And of
1: course, being under Indonesian rule all those years, there wouldn't have been any history of of organising?
6: Not really. Um, It still feels very much like many other things in a a sort of new democracy. It does feel like it's still kind of early days for the unions there. Having said that, they've done, certainly the General Workers Union has achieved quite a lot, um, but there's still always room to grow and probably some of the other unions have not flourished as well. And there's lots of different reasons for that. But the activism that has been encouraged and supported through training with the General Workers Union has meant that that union has continued to blossom. Yeah, they didn't really have any models under the Indonesian rule that they're reflective of what they're doing today.
1: What are the major areas of of work in Timor-Leste now?
6: Well there's a lot of informal sector work, Um, there's a lot of public sector work um, and there's lots of construction work because there's lots of development going on so there's a national roadways program that the unions are trying to break into in terms of getting union membership across the life of those projects so they go in different stages. So there's big, big construction projects that are going on, mainly around the roads, but they're also building a new, they have built a new airport in Swai on the other side of the island from Dili, and there's another airport being planned for Dili, and also an airport being planned for Okusi, and with the airport come lots of other different sort of infrastructure, but then you've got sort of, you know, general retail. A lot of the members of the General Workers Union come from the commerce sector or from retail. And the, again, probably the hardest to organise, and is the informal sector, which is why, as mentioned last week, the, the work of the domestic worker, the work of the Working Women's Centre around domestic workers is so important because informal workers have even less access to any kind of labour protections.
1: And who are the employers of these major projects?
6: That's a very good question. I don't know the names of the companies but they're international companies. There are Chinese, Korean and Indonesian companies who are building the roads and the infrastructure. So uh, a lot of external investment um, that's coming into the country from those different regions and that means also that they're they're bringing in sometimes uh, some parts of their own workforce as well and in supervisory roles, so it adds to the kind of diversity, I suppose, of, of who's who's in Timor at the moment. Uh, yes, the companies vary depending on where the projects are.
1: And how does importing workers with these projects impact on the Timor workers?
6: I think it probably doesn't have a significant impact because they're not exclusively—it's um, it, not exclusively imported labor. Like it's actually cheaper probably for the companies to employ local labor than to bring their own people. So they tend to bring people who are sort of in leadership roles rather than in the, the, the broader construction roles. But it's a good question. I don't know the answer. I'm going to be having a meeting with the general workers' union secretary a bit later today, so I might check in with him about that. As I said, it's an area that the that the union has only re- really just been given permission to organise in, so it's still sort of a new space for them as well.
1: So they are organising in, the, in these businesses, like Chinese businesses?
6: Certainly in ACUSI they are, they're organising the construction companies and um, and organising collective agreements. So yes, they're tr- attempting to, some are a little bit easier than others, but interestingly the union in ACUSI, the branch of the General Workers Union in ACUSI, they've won most of their collective agreement arrangements through taking pretty strong industrial action, so they're not just handing over. <laughs> the rights to the workers automatically, the workers really have to fight for them.
1: So are you saying Akusi is going ahead? Because that was sort of a neglected part of Timor, wasn't it?
6: It's an interesting place, Akusi. It's a a regional economic zone. So it's part of this kind of Asian channel of special economic areas where businesses are thriving and they're in lots of different countries in Southeast Asia. And has always been part of East Timor, even though physically it's, it's located sort of far away, and you have to cross over through Indonesia to get there, and there's a small small plane that you can fly from Dili to Okusi, and likewise to the other side of the island to, um, to Swai. So yes, it's definitely going ahead. It's definitely always been part of um, East Timor. It was apparently where the um, Portuguese first settled back in the 1700s, and so it has a sort of long East Timorese history and continues to be part of East Timor today.
1: And is one of the other projects that you're supporting the scholarship program?
6: Talking about the the scholarship that that was set up through MEA for the journalists? Yes. Okay, so that's a slightly separate project, but yes, that would probably add another one to the list of things that are going on in East Timor. That's a fantastic um, scholarship. It's only been running for a couple of years. It's, um, It's called the Balabo Five and Roger East fellowship, obviously in honour of the five journalists who were killed in 1975 and then Roger East, who was killed a little later that year, by the Indonesians. It was just just prior to uh, Indonesian occupation and they were situated in Balibo, which is a town that kind of looks over towards the Indonesian border and they were there as uh, investigative journalists trying to find out what was going on and trying to um, expose it to the outside world. and were caught by, the, caught by the Indonesians and murdered. So in honour of those workers, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance set up a, a scholarship which they've been putting money into, so individuals are contrib- contributing directly through a feeder and some organisations to provide a one-year scholarship to Timorese journalists to assist them to undertake investigative projects. So we've got two recipients this year, Priscilla Fonseca and Augusto Salmento and they're both journalists based in Dili. One of them, um, Priscilla works for the television station and um, Augusto works for the local, um, for the Timor Post, the main newspaper. Yeah, that's quite exciting. Um, We met with them when we were there in January as well and um, had a good conversation about what they're planning to do. it's a really good opportunity for them to be able to focus uh, specifically on their investigative skills but also to do a little bit of training and sharing with journalists here in Australia. So part of the scholarship will involve them coming and spending some time with journalists here in Australia and, and with news outlets, so that'll be really exciting for them and for us.
1: Okay. Well, well, we've got still got two or three more.
6: Yes, we've got... Um, so the big one, probably the, the one that people will know least about... Because it's sort of still relatively new for a feeder, but it's now been going for a couple of years, is our farmer organising and this is a massively growing area and the partner organisations, we've just added a third one to the organisations that we're partnering with. So one is called the KSI, one is called the IEP and the third one is called UNEAR. UNEAR stands for Union Agricultural de de Emera. So it's an agricultural union in the area of, of Emera and Emera is a district not too far away from Dili that is a coffee growing area but it's also known as one of the poorest districts of East Timor. Partly because the coffee has a really big bumper crop for around three months of the year and that's when all of the income comes in. But in the other months of the year there is no sustainable grow- um, income coming into the community so there's not, there hasn't been a diversification of crop or a, a sort of management or capacity for the local communities to be able to manage finances over the other nine months of the year. So the union was set up to train farmers about integrated farming techniques so that they're starting to grow vegetables and other crops um, at other times of the year when they're off season from coffee so that there isn't a constant flow of income coming in. And, and the big part of the, of, of, of the three organisations is that it's about giving the farmers, of which 85% of the population of Timor-Leste are still living in rural areas and living, and, and living from you know, self-sustaining farming, they are are starting to take ownership through the organising of community bases that they also want to be able to not just feed themselves and feed their families um, but that they want to be able to grow crops that will earn them an income that will be able to be brought into the communities. The focus has been on land reform and um, making sure that where the farmers are living on the land that they have right to farm it and their right to be able to decide what is farmed but then also working collectively to make decisions about what crops they're growing and how they are getting them to market so that they're getting a reasonable income for the additional crops that they're growing. And so they're doing that collectively. So the organisations that we're partnering with are supporting the development of community bases where the farmers work together, identify community-based leaders, make collective decisions about what they're going to grow. Often they're, they're doing the additional farming sort of on the weekends or in the evenings over and above their normal crops and then getting them to market. So there's a whole lot of layers of cross-training where the more established community bases are now training the new and emerging ones. The the organisations that we're partnering with have a team of organisers who are based out in the districts who are assisting them with lots of different types of training but including things like organic compost and organic fertilisers and sort of longer sustainable crops development that again goes, is in the hands and the decision making of the farmers themselves. And it's part of a national movement of farmer organisers that comes under a, a more political organisation in Timor called Mocatil, who are part of the Via Campesino model, the international peasants' movement. So it's very exciting work and there's some, been some fantastic successes already and it's just growing all the time.
1: And I'd imagine most of the crops would be organic?
6: Yes, they are. And they're, you know, they're they're trying to, uh, they're they're working together to, and with the advice from other farmers, who have been successful, to pick the crops that are going to grow the quick, most quickly, and to get to market in a reasonable time, and that they can grow multiple crops at the same time, so that they can continue to, to earn an income. So they're doing a bit of experimenting, but yes, it's organic, and um, and they're using sort of older style farming techniques, but with the current knowledge of farmers who are attempting to build or diversify their crops so that they can actually get food to market and make an income for their communities.
1: And I'd imagine it's pretty important that they are sustainable in a financial sense that the children don't have to be kept from school to help in the farms?
6: One of the biggest reasons why the communities are so keen on making a profit is because it still costs money to get kids to school and the schools are not necessarily just around the corner from where they live so they have to travel so the, one of the biggest focuses of the money coming into the community is to be able to afford to get the children to school so undoubtedly that is the big focus in all of the community bases that I've been visiting there are definitely young people who are working sort of young adults who are working on the farms and, but the focus for the kids is to get them to school.
1: What about the seasonal workers' program? Is that, is that a project that a feeder's involved with?
6: Yeah, it's a very a timely that you asked. I'm actually going to be heading off with the National Union of Workers here in the, the national team, uh, going to South Australia this week, and I'm going with them to Port Augusta because there, there are lots of seasonal workers coming over from Timor-Leste to uh, all different farms around the country. The main area the seasonal workers are coming over is in farming and some in hospitality. And, yeah, the General Workers Union, so that was the first partner organisation that I mentioned, have been working for a couple of years on getting into the pre-departure briefings for the seasonal workers to alert them to the fact that they have industrial rights when they come over, even as seasonal workers in Australia, but that they may not always be enjoying those, depending on the employment environment that they find themselves in, and giving them, advising them about um, joining the union and what the union can do to support them. And at the same time, the National Union of Workers has worked very closely with lots of different communities, not just from TMLS Day, who have been brought over as seasonal workers Assisting them to a identify their rights, but also to collectively challenge employers who are exploiting them um, in lots of different ways. So, yes, yeah, so there's a really nice link there where the General Workers Union and the National Union of Workers. Uh, So the General Workers Union will do the pre-departure briefings and then the National Union of Workers will go and meet with the workers when they arrive and try to get uh, that uh, that understanding that if they are working collectively as, as members of the union then they're more likely to enjoy the full benefits that they should enjoy under Australian labour law while they're here and not some of the horrific abuses that we've seen that come out on the 7.30 report in the Mm. farms all over the country, actually.
1: So what you're saying is that also the the workers are in a group when they go to a, a farm?
6: Yes, they are. So, I mean, it varies the size of the group. Sometimes it's only six or ten people, sometimes it's larger depending on the farms and depending on what their needs are and depending on what the season is that they're, that they're picking for. So at high peak season then they're going to send larger groups and sometimes they come from lots of different locations. So there are seasonal workers from from Cambodia, from Indonesia, from, from Vietnam and Timor-Leste and other countries as well.
1: And who sets the paying conditions?
6: Paying conditions are set in Australian law, so um, the seasonal worker paying conditions are the same as the minimum wage and minimum conditions under the award in Australia for seasonal workers. What varies from employer to employer is the additional things that they charge the workers for, such as excessive costs sometimes for their accommodation and meals. There's not necessarily a clear upholding of their rights around breaks and days off. Sometimes the accommodation that is provided is incredibly substandard. And so there are a variety of ways that the workers should be getting the minimum wage or the minimum wage according to the award of the industry, but once the employer starts taking out various different things, they end up getting a lot less and not necessarily recognising that they have a right to overtime and penalty rates and other things like that. So this is why the union is so important for those workers who otherwise wouldn't have a voice. Yeah, I think that's it. We've got the, union. yeah, two of the unions, the three different organisations that are farmer organisations. Um, and then the Working Women's Centre, and then the Balabo Scholarship on the side. So that's that's it.
1: So it's a fair commitment from a feeder.
6: <laughs> it's a lot, yeah. There are a lot of there's a lot of projects going on. The farming work we get funding from the government for as well. So that's one of the projects that doesn't we don't have to kind of. Uh, only get money from union members for um, which is some of the political stuff so the Australian, um, current Australian government funding doesn't allow us to support trade union development so the General Workers Union and, the, and even the Working Women's Centre does not get, currently get funding from the federal government but the farmer projects do fit under DFAT's guidelines so we get some funding from the government for them as well.
1: So what you've got is workers, assisting workers in other countries?
6: Yes, that's exactly right, that's the FEDA model, it's a solidarity rather than a charity and so it's directly about workers um, aligning themselves with workers in other parts of the world and um, sharing that solidarity in a range of different ways. Thanks, Sam. No worries at all.
1: And that's Sam Bond, who's the organiser for East Timor projects and Indonesian projects with the FIDA. And as Sam said, it's unionists in Australia putting their money towards helping unionists in developing countries. It's 28 minutes past five.
4: It is listener sponsors who keep
3: the radio station going. When you become a listener sponsor, you get a part of this radio station. You get a little part of it. It's yours. You get a
5: little share of it. They talk about-
1: It's 3CR Subscriber Drive and we're asking you to show your love for 3CR. Support your favorite
7: show by calling us on nine
1: four one nine eight three seven seven, or online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. $35 unwaged, $70 waged or 150 solidarity. Subscribe to 3CR
7: today.
4: People lining up uh, out in the street, uh, out in Smith
2: Street and Collingwood, lining up to take out their listeners' sponsorship. Yeah,
0: Ahoy there, meets. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Centre in St Kilda. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going,
7: ah, ah,
0: ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call nine four one nine
1: eight three double seven. Earlier I spoke with Kathy Kelly a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Cathy, you've spent a lifetime seeking ways to prevent violence and wars and assisting those who suffer as a consequence of that violence and wars. When you focus your attention on the situation in Yemen, does it take you back to the similarities to Iraq, reliving the horrors of Iraq, after the first Gulf War and subsequent invasion?
7: Well, thank you for asking that, Jan. You know, I th- think that Yemen is certainly a situation that is similar to what was seen in Iraq in recognizing that countries all around the world, and certainly the government of the United States, could abide by, tolerate the brutal and horrid punishment of hundreds and thousands of Iraqi children who starved to death or died of curable diseases, we're talking about little children under age five, because of the foreign policy they wanted to impose, uh, it certainly makes us realize that it could happen again uh, at such appalling, horrible numbers in Yemen and, of course, within uh, countries comprising the horn of africa where there there is drought and that's that's uh, you know a very bad luck you know bad deck of cards i suppose you might say but we are also looking at drought that was caused by northern industrialist greenhouse gases and with regard to yemen we're looking at failures of the society to cope with a host of very very serious problems, in large part because so much has been diverted to uh, continue warfare. Both civil war and now the Saudi-led coalition war against Yemeni civilians and also United States airstrikes and surveillance and interference and support for the Saudis and participation in the Saudi strikes. And now we see also the potential for another kind of civil war between those who want a southern secessionist government and the rest of the country. But I suppose, Jan, we have to also be looking at the kinds of problems that young students identified way back in 2011, a lowering water table, rising prices, and uh, the consequent Fleeing of people from more remote areas or from towns into the larger cities, and then the larger cities become swamped with so many demands, and they can't cope. And so, you have more and more people who are desperate, and the medical facilities can't cope. Well, then, you know, you, you add to that civil war and the Saudi wealth and opulence and weapon strength combined with that of the United States attacking. This country, which is the poorest country in the Saudi Peninsula, and is absorbing who are trying to escape, thinking, oh, maybe if we get to Yemen, we can then move on somewhere else. It's a hideous nightmare that is afflicting people. So that now uh, Mark uh, Lokhunk of the United Nations has said that uh, 8 million people are estimated to be at risk of starvation because of near famine conditions, and that one million people have been identified with cholera, and then there was an outbreak of diphtheria, and and that's extremely contagious. And, And all of these crises are happening while the medical facilities are only working at best in half capacity and roads have been destroyed, transportation systems have been wrecked, Ports are still being either fully or semi-blockaded, and so uh, it's probably going to be, according to the United Nations, collaborated by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, the greatest humanitarian crisis since World War II. Millions of people are likely to die.
1: What does this say about humanity? Uh,
7: Well, you know... I still believe, Jan, that if average, ordinary people in Australia, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, understood, because they were seeing this on their evening news, night after night after night, if they understood the level of suffering and the causes behind it, I don't think, for instance, the blockade against Yemen would withstand the light of day. The United States would say to Saudi Arabia, hey, knock it off.
1: But people aren't given the opportunity, are they?
7: No, I don't think so. I mean, just on a very, very microcosmic level, um, my good friend and I want to say colleague, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink, who has challenged the Saudi government and the Israeli government and the U.S. government, has tried along with me to get a visa to enter Yemen, and, and we found it simply impossible. We tried for many, many months. And, you know, it, it's also, I think, important, Jan, to realize the sort of confluence of different characters who, whose involvement in the region has been punitive for Yemen. And one thing I want to mention is that a retired Australian general, retired general Hindmarsh, is now working for the United Arab Emirates government, and he coordinates their presidential guard, and his sort of uh, major skill is in coordinating special operations forces. And he had done that amongst the UAE fighters, and and now he is a a very key person in designing fighting plans and military operations that the United Arab Emirates would carry on in Yemen. So there is a network of 18 clandestine prisons, horrific places, terrifying places, People dread ever going to one of these clandestine prisons in any country, but in Yemen right now, the United Arab Emirates are operating 18 secret prisons wherein people who've survived have said that the methods of torture include trussing a person's body on a sort of rotating spit and then roasting the person as the spit rotates over Uh, 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 some source of terrible heat. Well, that kind of torture is barbaric, and yet how many people in Australia are kept aware on a daily basis of Australia's connection to the United Arab Emirates and the torture prisons that they're running in southern Yemen? And, And certainly likewise, how many people in the United States where I live are aware that it's U.S. companies that are supplying, through sales, Saudi Arabia and other Saudi coalition-led countries with uh, massive, massive weaponry. I mean, it it so outweighs anything that the Iranians might have supplied to the Houthi rebels. And, And people just don't know this. If they did know it, I think they'd at least start to ask some questions. But it's just considered to be something that's out of, the what would I say, out, just so outside what would be considered an interest level for U.S. people. And, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed, actually, by what's been happening at the Olympics in terms of sports, in a sense, being the means to bring people together. But, but generally, I would say on U.S. television, sports and entertainment are the means of keeping U.S. people unaware, highly unaware, and consequently unconcerned about
1: foreign policies. So how much of this terrible war in Yemen can you relate to the fact that the U.S. is trying to make sure that Iran doesn't get any influence in that area?
7: Well, I think that the United States continually, and, and most particularly through a recent visit by the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, who traveled with a congressional delegation, has been trying to say... We are not going to let up on Iran. We're going to keep making sure that Iran cannot organize or fund terrorist activities anywhere in the world. Well, you know, I don't think anybody knows, yay or nay, you know, can say yes or or no whether or not Iran is supplying some of the Houthi rebels in Yemen with weaponry. But we do know that there's no no chance that Iran is giving the Houthis the kinds of weapons that the United States is selling to Saudi Arabia. I mean, the, the United States has sold the Saudis four combat littoral ships. These are ships that can go right alongside the coastline. And without those, the Saudis wouldn't have been able to blockade major ports and thereby starve people in Yemen. The United States has engaged in mid-air refueling of Saudi jets that go out and bomb civilian populations and civilian infrastructure. They couldn't wage those bombing sorties on an almost daily basis without U.S. direct U.S. support. And apparently uh, the U.K. is also giving support and assistance with uh, so-called surveillance. And so the Saudis have bombed four Doctors Without Borders hospitals. They've bombed transportation systems including public buses, public gathering places, including weddings and funerals, warehouses where food is stored. They they've made it almost impossible for distribution of food, either because they prevented fuel from getting in or because the roadways are destroyed. And of course as they formed networks of secret prisons and Uh, use sniping and shelling of cities, the rebels start to do the same thing. So a city like Ta'ish becomes a place where it must be a nightmare to live. People are putting up with snipers and shelling from both sides and blockades so that they can't get in needed food and fear that they're going to run out of water and also the fear that if somebody speaks up, they might be held hostage by some hostile group. And when I think about that, it saddens me particularly because that city, Ta'is, was considered to be the hub of some of the most dynamic, non-violent, direct-action resistance to all the various warlords uh, back at the time of the Arab Spring.
1: Not only that, but you've written also that it was a, a very educated cosmopolitan city.
7: Well, it certainly was considered to be the artistic center of Yemen. And Sana'a was the capital, is in some ways still considered to be the capital, although there certainly is a lot of division within the country. And I should imagine people living in the south aren't looking to people in the north to say, well, you constitute the capital of our country. But Taiz was the place where young people in particular had congregated and managed to do really remarkable organizing and outreach. At one point, there was a huge gathering in Sana'a, in this capital city, where they had a place called Change Square. You know, you had Tahir Square, and in Bahrain you had the Pearl Square. Well, this was called Change Square. And at one point, government claimed clothes, armed figures, posted on rooftops, fired their guns into a demonstration, and killed 50 of the demonstrators, many of them young students. And also many young demonstrators had been sh- taken off to prison. Now at this point, this is such a dire situation, and the young people more or less consulted the Gandhian principles, the Martin Luther King principles, and they decided that they would organize a walk of hundreds and hundreds of people, unarmed, a 200-kilometer walk, and they managed to organize it so that it also included ranchers from the border area between South and North Yemen, people who next to never left their houses without their rifles deliberately agreed to put the guns down and experiment with trying for a nonviolent way forward. And, you know, they had done daily demonstrations with entertainment, with YouTube videos, with um, a long fast outside one of the prisons. They more or less tried everything that you would hope to find in the playbook, if you will, of unarmed, nonviolent resistance. And then there were negotiations that had been arranged by the Gulf Corporation Council following 2011, the former dictator who had ruled Yemen for 33 years, uh, Ali Abdullah Salah, said, okay, I'll, I'll step aside. It didn't mean he and his cronies were giving up power, but he instead put his vice president in power. The man was not elected, Abdullah Mansur Hadi, who is now considered to be the internationally recognized leader of Yemen. But he lives in Riyadh, and he had to flee, because he really doesn't have very much of a constituency. Salah came back and kind of turned against him with the Houthi rebels. Salah has since now himself been assassinated by the Houthi rebels. But there was a point when nonviolent solutions were being experimented with, and countries like the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia could have said, we are in full support of these nonviolent activists who recognize that subsidies have been taken away for fuel, that the water table has gone down, that there's high unemployment, that the cities are overcrowded, and they want to try to work for changes that will bring about equitable sharing of resources.
1: The trouble is, in, in the U.S. particularly, peace is not good for business.
7: Well, that's certainly true. The companies that are benefiting the most from sales to Saudi Arabia include Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin. And these are companies that love to do business with the Saudis because the Saudis pay cash up front. So when President Trump went over to Saudi Arabia and danced with Saudi princes, you could imagine. Those company heads would agree with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who said, time is on our side with regard to the war in Yemen. He said, a prolonged war is in our strategic interests. So they don't want that war necessarily to end, because who is going to buy the products of Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin if there aren't wars going on? And if uh, poor people in Yemen pay the price, you know, as a group of people who fled war and starvation in Africa and go over to Yemen and then discover that they're in a far worse situation where, in fact, they might even be more or less taken hostage and placed in a torture camp, these actually have existed such that people are tortured until they give up a phone number of someone in the community they came from, a community somewhere in Africa, maybe Somaliland or maybe Nigeria or maybe Ethiopia. And then the people whose phone number has been given are receiving calls that say, if you don't send money, we'll continue to hold your loved one hostage and subject the person to torture. So people don't realize when they get into smugglers' boats and they go over to Yemen, that this is a very dangerous crossing, that they could be landing in a far worse setting where disease and hunger and thirst are the lot of ordinary people, and so then they might try to go back. And then the smugglers fill the boats to overcapacity, try at times to extort even more money from these beleaguered migrants and refugees, and recently one of those boats capsized after the smugglers started to attack the passengers with guns. And then there was panic and the boat capsized. And so we might easily say, well, those smugglers are so heartless that they would aim their weapons at innocent people that they've already stolen from. But then I think, Jan, what about us? And we aim huge weapons at innocent people that we've already oppressed because we've taken their resources at cut rate prices and we expect to keep it up
1: do you link any of the refugees coming from africa to the destruction of libya by clinton and her friends because libya was a very uh, a very stabilizing place in north africa and also supported many of the people in those countries to the south and employed them you know i think that the part
7: of the problem with demonizing leadership of other countries which the united states is so prone to do and i know i have to be careful not to demonize anyone myself but i think you're right And um, the united states was uh, the the public was more or less blinkered unable to see that actually under cabrante although he was somebody who had blood on his hands, no doubt, and had a very quirky way of running a country. He also had shared the wealth so that uh, many Libyans had managed to rise beyond poverty. And yes, you're right, it was a stabilizing influence that helped uh, support other countries in the region. I I mean, I sometimes think about Iraq under Saddam Hussein, and there's no doubt he was a ruthless uh, dictator. But Iraq had built up an amazing capacity to meet people's health needs within Iraq and beyond, in the region. And also, um, Saddam Hussein liked it if he was regarded as the person that came to the rescue of people in other countries that were experiencing um, great social and economic needs. He may not have always supported the poorest people in his own country, but he liked to support other countries. Well. You know, uh, you look at Yemen and who, had history gone differently, might have supported the millions of people in Yemen. And now also we must look at Somaliland, Somalia, Puntland, Ethiopia, Nigeria, parts of Kenya. Well, Iraq and Libya, in a way, might have been the countries had they been able to continue to build up their economic wherewithal and their scientific abilities they might have been able to create a generation of technocrats and others who could help to do the kinds of things that you know united states peace corps workers um at their best would have been trying to do
1: if you had got your visa to go to Yemen what do you believe you could have done
7: well, I want to be very modest and humble about it, but I think that at the time that we were looking to get into the country, um, BBC had not yet paid a visit. CNN went in as embeds with the Saudi military recently. Uh, 60 Minutes was able to get in, but they never said one word about United States support for Saudi bombing. Um, at the time that we were trying to get the visas, and um, that would have been... Um, spring through fall of 2017, there was very, very little coverage. So I would have wanted to bring a tape recorder and ask people to speak on tape uh, who were healthcare workers or sanitation workers or United Nations workers, if any of them would be so willing, and then be able to give that tape to radio stations back in the United States and say, you know, this is yours if you'll use it. I would have certainly wanted to try to spend as much time in the hallways and rooms in the hospitals as might be possible. I would have wanted to go to neighborhoods in Sanaa where places had been bombed and um, talk to people at the schools and at the mosques and at the community centers and ask them how has life gone on and and how are you getting water and how are you getting food. I would have wanted to try to get as close as possible to the port of Hodeidah and find out how people feel when they know that, The Saudis are talking about taking that port, taking it over, and knowing that very, very fierce uh, Sudanese mercenaries, among others, are fighting up the coastline, uh, taking city after city, and uh, getting closer and closer to the Port of Pobeda. So these would have um, all been important things to do, important lessons to learn, and, and I'm glad now that some reporters are getting in. Iona Craig is certainly one of the best and she has uh, for many years reported from yemen and she speaks the language and she is herself muslim so um the moral power to her and i hope that as many of us as possible can keep listening to her
1: is there anything else you'd like to add well there is the
7: possibility that Mohammed bin salman will be coming to the united states sometime in march it's uh, been stated that he would go to uh, the massachusetts institute of technology in boston and uh, to new york and to houston and possibly other places it seems right now organizers have been trying to bring him to the united kingdom and uh, there's such opposition they had to delay the trip so this may delay his visits to the united states And again, I don't think we should take the posture of saying everything is the fault of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, but I think we should ask him, why does he believe that a prolonged war is in the favor of anyone or that time is on the side of people who are bombing and killing Yemeni children and civilians?
1: Thank you, again.
7: All right. Thank you, Jen. All best wishes to you.
1: And that's Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Coming up, time for me to go, but I will be back next week at four o'clock. No Kevin Healy next week. He's off to the beach. Looks as though he might have some good weather for his boogie boarding (coughs) and his champagne drinking after. Okay, done by law coming up in a moment. Let's hear from... I lost my voice the song of Eureka <clears throat> the song of Eureka I right for now
4: from every corner of the world they came from all around When in 1851, they struck gold upon the ground. Every voyage was a long one, months upon the stormy sea. Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery. What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs. Discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs. The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse. The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. The crown tried to divide them Giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it They said it's all of us or none They built a stockade While the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call, they swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. over And things go their way, but when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day, the crown conceded everything, all of their demands. They'd won an end to license fees, the right to vote and land. So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest. They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard 10,000 miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun.